Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to be talking about end of life. Not your life, not my life, hopefully, but instead the end of the life of a console platform and other technological devices as this becomes more and more of an issue as we move from 2021 into the great beyond here. But if you haven't been following the news, Sony and their PlayStation product line has made some pretty important announcements. They are closing the PlayStation Store, through which you can buy digital products, on both the PlayStation 3 and the PlayStation Vita. For perfect clarity, one thing that I would say is they have said that they will continue to support downloads of things that you've already purchased from those stores for at least some time into the future. But for right now, important aspects of both the PlayStation 3 and the PlayStation Vita are closing. And I think at bare minimum, it reminds people that are at all invested in any digital ecosystem, not just a Sony PlayStation 1, that these things all have some kind of specified time frame. That preservation of these particular games that are digital or perhaps available only on digital through the PlayStation 3 store or the PlayStation Vita store are going to become more and more difficult to access and to find. And certainly for preservationists, people that love the video game industry and want to see that history of the video game industry preserved in some way, this presents yet another alarm bell for what the future holds for these kinds of things. A greater alarm bell, however, was made known to me from a number of you that have followed the channel or that otherwise know about virtual legality regarding a video that was done by a YouTube channel called, and I apologize in advance for the pronunciation here, Hakikomori Media, who flagged a topic on this whole PlayStation issue as follows. Your PlayStation software has an expiration date. The C-bomb explained. Now, as you know, I am fully aware of my limitations as an engineer, as a technologist on how these things work. So I highly recommend if you're interested in the specifics here that you go and you check out this video. I always like to link to the source material in any event, but as he goes through and explains what's happening here in short form, the PlayStation 3 and the PlayStation 4, and it's not been able to be seen on the PlayStation 5 as of yet, have to verify that the time frame shown in the PlayStation 3's internal clock matches up with some check, whether it's through their own battery or the PlayStation Network, in order to unlock access to digital games. It's effectively a kind of authentication that you're not dealing with a hacked PlayStation, you're not doing something untowards, that these games are verified by virtue of the clock. The problem is that the battery, of course, like any other piece of technology, can break down over a period of time. And the solve for that from the Sony side was to go and ask the PlayStation Network what time it is, and assuming everything is fine there, then you get to access your digital games, no problem. The issue is, with announcements like the store closing, it is known that at some point, PlayStation Network support for these various generations of consoles, the legacy of Sony manufacturing, is likely to be ended at some point in the future as well. When that happens, if you don't have your battery working, if you don't have PlayStation Network access, this little green unlock sign turns to a lock sign. And again, we're taking this on face because there's no real reason to lie about these kinds of things, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. I'm not the right person to ask for verifying this type of technological issue, but if it is in fact as represented, a lot of people are upset. If they bought digital games throughout the PlayStation 3 lifespan, throughout the PlayStation 4 lifespan, in fact, there's a clip on this video that suggests that physical media on the PlayStation 4 also requires authentication of that type. One of the questions that comes up is, what can we do about it, right? The PlayStation 3 is not a young system, right? It was released in November of 2006. 
So one of the things that I like to start out with, because a lot of people ask this from a legal perspective, can we bring a class action? Can we bring a lawsuit? What can we do against Sony? In fact, the video that I just mentioned asks that question at the end. One thing that's important to know about products liability and products in general under the law, at least in the United States, and I am again, a United States lawyer, is that products are not anticipated to be available and function perfectly forever under the laws of the states of the United States. So when you see that a system came out in November of 2006, we're looking at 15 plus years ago when we're having this conversation, one of the things that will come up is, is it reasonable to expect that this system will continue to operate 20 years on? And for the most part, that's not the case with consumer electronics. You can say that that's right. You can say that that's wrong. You can say it's better protected in other jurisdictions, and I would believe you. But one of the things we have to look at is the distinction between Sony doing something in November of 2007, say, and doing something in terms of closing off the PlayStation Network in November of 2026, that there are certain reasonability standards that are applied to products liability. That if you go and you buy a washing machine on the cheap from Walmart or from wherever, it's not anticipated by Walmart, it's not anticipated by you, that it will last 20 years. It's going to last some time frame less than that. And consumer electronics don't really leave that field as much as it might bother you or I in terms of the preservation of access to those video games. So that's your first hurdle. And this video, I think, as we talk about the legal landscape of what we're looking at with a problem like this, is going to be a presentation of hurdles. There are things we can talk about as potential fixes for something like this, but it's going to be a lot of problems in terms of the contract language that Sony has put forth, in terms of the contract rights that American citizens have under the end user license agreement, the software license, the warranty, and what on. Continuing, let's take a look at the software product license agreement. I believe this was the copy uh, that the earlier YouTube video actually showed. A couple of things to note here before we dive into the language. One is that the license agreement that is applicable to the software that you purchased is applicable at the time that you purchased it. You agreed to an end user license agreement at that time. It will have been amended a bunch of times since then. Generally speaking, these are going to operate so that they automatically amend the next time you access the software, or maybe you have to click through a box again. Perhaps you have had instances where you've gone into a video game and you've clicked the box for the second time because something has changed in the end user license agreement. That means that it's not entirely transparent what terms apply to the software as you purchase it when you did purchase it, but we can take certain things as generalized concepts that are going to be the same even back in 2006. First, we look at the Sony PlayStation software product license agreement and we see that the defined term software with a capital S is all software products on authorized PlayStation systems. So when we look at a document like this, which will be incorporated by reference in the PlayStation Store, you would have agreed to it, even if maybe you didn't notice it when you purchased something from that PlayStation Store, incorporates all notions of software products, every game that you purchased through the PlayStation Store. As we've talked about in virtual legality before, it's entirely important, it's critical to note that software as a concept is really never sold by the software owner. They retain the intellectual property rights to the software and they license out certain rights to you. Primarily, the right to play the game you just purchased on the PlayStation Store on your authorized PlayStation system, which for the most part is all anybody wants to do with it. But we get into fights here in virtual legality with various folks that suggest that this is a bad thing, that it's not sold, it's only licensed. That isn't entirely accurate. 
every piece of pop culture that you purchase, even whether it's a Blu-ray on a movie or even a book, you're purchasing in terms of a license to the intellectual property. The original publisher has the rights to continue publishing the book. The original movie studio has the right to commercialize the viewing of that movie. You can't just take a Blu-ray of Avatar, put it up in a movie theater and charge people to enter and watch it. That would be a violation of the intellectual property rights of the movie studio itself. Similarly, video games have these end user license agreements to establish the boundaries around which we describe what it is that you can do with your software. The software is licensed to you, not sold. What do they give you? They grant you a limited, non-exclusive license to use the software for personal use on your PlayStation system to play the game. The license does not include renting, leasing, or sublicing the software, making it available on a network to other users, modifying, adapting, translating, reverse engineering, decompiling, disassembling, creating der derivative works, creating or making available unauthorized mods, or copying, publicly performing, or broadcasting the software. Now, that last one is a point of contention here in virtual legality, right? We talk about streaming and things you do on Twitch, and I've pointed out in a number of places that the end-user license agreements for a lot of these games, the baseline prohibits things like publicly performing or broadcasting the software in a way that should give every streamer pause, whether you're on YouTube gaming, Facebook gaming, or Twitch. But that's a topic for another video. And, and if you go and you search for that topic on this channel, you'll see it discussed in a number of places. So the baseline starting point is when you buy something from the PlayStation store, you don't own it, you're licensing it only to use it on your PlayStation and not to do anything else with it subject to these terms. These terms also say that SIE may, by automatic update or otherwise, modify the software at any time for any reason. If the software uses online servers, SIE makes no commitment to continue to make those servers available and may terminate online features at any time. Now, this sounds really bad for what we're talking about here, right? Which is a PlayStation store going away, no longer able to authenticate the time and date and thus killing your licenses that exist that you've purchased either on your system or through what would have been a download tab on the store. Understand from a legal perspective, from the context here, this isn't actually quite as bad as it sounds. Yes, they can change anything for any reason. No, they wouldn't be able to do that the moment after you bought it without getting into trouble for good faith and fair dealing under their contracts, as we've talked about in virtual legality. You do have to not just be committing fraud, even if you reserve certain rights in your contract. But also this blue area here, where if the software uses online servers, it makes no commitment to continue to make those servers available, is a slightly different concept from whether or not the PlayStation Store is authenticating your license to the video game. This is more conceptually something that is actually using an online server, something like a game as a service, a Destiny or a Division, or currently I think Outriders uh, is the popular game. Uh, right now, that this is distinct in my mind, and I certainly would support the argument if it came up in some kind of legal context, that this is about actual delivery of functionality through online services, terminate online features, and certainly access to a single player game just by virtue of checking a date isn't an online feature, it's just a protection mechanism at the Sony console level. So while it is strong language, they would certainly present it as them having the right to do this kind of thing. It isn't as strong as it might otherwise be suggested. Similarly, in the warranty language, and the earlier video makes small errors here. They're not lawyers, so we don't hold it against them. In terms of analyzing the warranty here and seeing that things are delivered as is, this is really about liability that attaches to Sony, not exactly whether they have the right to do something and whether you have the right 
to fix it. The biggest issue in this section is that they say that SIE may at its sole discretion discontinue supporting software at any time and SIE has no liability for such discontinuance. You can't sue them for money, for liability. You might be able to bring some kind of action to say, hey, you have to fix this for us. In fact, the video that brought all this up suggests an end of life plan that just says, hey, we turn off the clock checks if we stop supporting the PlayStation Network on these various consoles, which would seem to be easy enough to do. Obviously, what is easy enough to do isn't something that these corporations always do, but it's worth holding their feet to the fire on that kind of thing. The rest of this is really just about liability. They're saying that if something accidentally happens, if we lose data, if it's interrupted service, that you can't sue us for liability, it doesn't really encompass the things that they directly do, such as turning off access to the PlayStation Store. So we're again... In kind of gray area, Sony's obviously written this to be as protective of themselves as we would expect, but we haven't really lost the fight necessarily if we wanted to have that fight. Where we get into more significant trouble is here. The question was, can you bring a class action? The answer is, by the words on the page, no. When you look at this document, you're actually agreeing to individual arbitration. You and the adverse Sony entity must seek resolution of the dispute only through arbitration of that dispute according to this section and not litigate that dispute in court. Worse, if you're looking to start a class action, is that any dispute resolution proceedings, whether in arbitration or in court, will be conducted only on an individual basis and not in a class or representative action or as a named or unnamed member in a class consolidated. You also agree before you do any of that to negotiate resolution of the dispute for no fewer than 60 days. So they got breaks on the whole mechanism. They force you into arbitration. If you kick it out to court, you can't bring a class action. They've got themselves protected in a number of different ways here, or so they would think, right? We've talked about the Patreon problem before in virtual legality, where because this is a California-based uh, document, you could get them with a number of arbitrations all at once. It would really require concerted effort, and it seems unlikely in this context. But you've got hurdles, that's what I want to impress upon people more than anything, is you've got this black letter language in the contract that says no court cases, only arbitration, good faith negotiation, what we might consider mediation for 60 days before you even get to arbitration. And if somehow you kick this thing out into court, you can't bring a class action. You all have to bring this action yourselves. And then the question becomes, what is the action anyway? Right? We've got a contract that here that says we can change the software. We don't have to support the servers. You're going to have to try to bring something like false advertising or a breach of good faith and fair dealing. These concepts that are a little bit inchoate, a little bit ephemeral, that are not as easy as, oh, you've made this promise to me in this sentence, and now you violated it so I can come after you. Similarly, in terms of the age of the PlayStation 3, which is what we are looking at here, and the PlayStation 4 would have this argument a little bit less, and the PlayStation 5 obviously significantly less, you see that the warranties on the actual hardware are for one-year periods. That the concept kind of built in here is that the PlayStation 3 will last, as promised by Sony, for a year, and after that point, you'd have to pay for servicing. So what we're fundamentally talking about is a battery that goes away. It's a hardware failure some 10 years, 15 years on, and that generally wouldn't be the kind of thing that the law would expect Sony to have to cover. So you've got this kind of situation where you've got a console that is after its expected end of life, so the seven years of the generation, maybe even the 10 years, if you want to extend it a little bit, with a battery failing after that period, and then by virtue of them not wanting to support a PlayStation store that probably isn't making them money, that is involving a little bit of extra cost, that isn't a good business decision at that point in time, 
they've got the justifications they need to generally make that call doesn't leave PlayStation owners in a great spot. And one of the other things that was brought up in the video was class actions have been brought against Sony on changes to the core functionality of the system. If you don't remember, and this is an article from April of 2010, a class action lawsuit was filed against Sony for releasing a firmware update that intentionally disabled the install other OS feature, the, the Linux feature that was marketed as part of the PlayStation 3 product. In fact, the plaintiff in this case said, this is false marketing. I bought a PlayStation 3 because of this OS feature. You've effectively mandated that it go away. And this class action was eventually settled. But understand that this wasn't kind of a breach of warranty concept. This wasn't a breach of something in the contract language that we just reviewed. It was effectively false advertising that you put out here that this is what your system would do and you were tricked. And so I can bring a lawsuit. Now, somebody could come out and say, hey, you know what the PlayStation 3 really advertised that it did? It played video games and it's going to stop doing that, but it's going to stop doing that 15 years, 20 years down the line. So that presents its own problem. Now, there is another direction that you can go with this. This video actually talks about not wanting to be a pirate, not wanting to have piracy, wanting to support these systems, wanting to potentially buy digital games, not blaming digital game players and owners and buyers uh, because that might just make the most sense for them. And I agree with everything that this uh, video said on that point, but we aren't necessarily talking about something that is bright line piracy. If you haven't read the DMCA outside of what you might see in terms of YouTube strikes before, there's a section entitled Circumvention of Copyright Protection Systems. And it says broadly, no person shall circumvent a technological measure that effectively controls access to a work protected under this title. In other words, you can't go and hack around things like clock checks and authorizations and whatnot. But there's a giant exception to all of this. If we scroll down in this law, we see that the librarian of the Library of Congress shall publish a class of copyrighted works for which the librarian has determined, pursuant to the rulemaking conducted under subparagraph C, that non-infringing users by persons who are users of a copyrighted work are or are likely to be adversely affected. And the prohibition contained in some paragraph A shall not apply to such users with respect to such class of works for the ensuing three-year period. Said another way, the librarian goes through and analyzes the current state of technology every three years and comes up with a report that says this would be too problematic for a certain class of consumers, of users, whatever it might be. And so those folks no longer have to abide by this restriction. In fact, they did it just recently, presumed to the authority set forth in 17 U.S.C. 1201 A1C and D, and upon the recommendation of the Register of Copyrights, the librarian has determined that the prohibition against circumvention of technological measures that effectively control access to copyrighted works set forth in 17 U.S.C. 1201 A1A shall not apply to persons who engage in non-infringing uses of the following classes of copyrighted works. What does this list include, among other things? You can see we're already on page 71. Video games. Video games in the form of computer programs embodied in physical or downloaded formats that have been lawfully acquired as complete games when the copyright owner or its authorized representative has ceased to provide access to an external computer server necessary to facilitate an authentication process to enable local gameplay solely for the purpose of permitting access to the video game to allow copying and modification of the computer program to restore access to the game for personal gameplay on a personal computer or video game console. Now that might sound like the solve that you need. Hey, look, this isn't a violation of copyright. It's not piracy. It's not wrong. 
to just go around and make sure that I can still play my digital games. And morally, ethically, I think you're right. And I think you're reading the concept here correctly, but unfortunately not the letter of the law. Let's go back and look at the discussion that the librarian had on this topic. Proposed class 23, video games requiring server communication. Many modern video games, which may be played on a personal computer or a dedicated gaming console, require a network connection to a remote server operated by the game's developer to enable core functionalities. So that's the first issue. What the librarian is concerned with here is the game's developer. There really isn't a thought given to this concept that not the developer, not the publisher, but in fact, the console hardware manufacturer is something that needs to be thought of in this particular exception to the overall DMCA rule. Before some games can be played at all, including in single player mode, the game must connect to an authentication server to verify that the game is a legitimate copy. And there are also matchmaking servers, which we're going to ignore for purposes of this conversation. In the case of a game that relies on an authentication server, the game may be rendered entirely unplayable if the server connection is lost. Then they go into the discussion that the various sides had on this. As the record developed, it became evident that the proposal focused on two types of use. One, people who wish to continue to play physical or downloaded copies of video games they have lawfully acquired, referred to in this recommendation as gamers, the players of games. And two, Those who seek to preserve individual video games and make them available for research and study referred to in the recommendation as preservationists, the people that want to have them in a museum versus just necessarily playing them. The ESA expressed particular concern about the potential for piracy as a result of circumvention activities, explaining that if the exemption were to permit circumvention of TPMs, that's technological protection measures, just to add another phrase to the old rule book here, On video game consoles, those consoles could be used to play pirated video games. Opponents also urged that petitioners had failed to demonstrate cognizable adverse effects, arguing, for example, that the vast majority of games can continue to be played in single-player mode when server support has ended, and that there are other alternative means of playing games in multiplayer mode without a matchmaking server, including by using a local area network. Opponents of these things said, changing the console is problematic because you might pirate something, and hey, Most stuff still works in single player. NTIA, which is an agency of the government, supported adoption of the proposed exemption for video games for continued gameplay and for preservation, both for single player and multiplayer. NTIA argued that gamers should be permitted to restore access to a work that they had originally been allowed to use, that they spent money for, that they purchased. With respect to gamers, the register concluded that the record supported granting an exemption for video games. That's the exemption that we just read that require communication with an authentication server to allow gameplay when the requisite server is taken offline. Again, all good so far, right? But the register also confirmed that the exemption for gamers should not extend to jailbreaking of console software because such jailbreaking is strongly associated with video game piracy. So what this actually says, if we look at the words here, is that you are allowed to access the video game to modify it, but not the console. In fact, this is made much more abundantly clear a little bit later on, which says computer programs used to operate video game consoles can be modified without violating the DMCA solely to the extent necessary for not a gamer, but an eligible library, archives, or museum to engage in preservation activities. Said another way, what this says right here is that video games can be modified. The game itself, you could go in and figure out how to hack it in order to say that you don't have to check for a clock 
if the authentication server at the PlayStation Network were taken down, but you'd have to figure out how to get in there through the console without breaking the console, and you would have to do it for every single video game because this is an umbrella problem at the PlayStation level and not at the developer level. So I'm bringing this to you as a concept because I think it's important to note that the librarian, the copyright office, the DMCA in general is cognizant of issues here with respect to video games. But like all things in the law, it's a few steps late on whatever's happening in the current time frame. So if this is going to be a concern in the future, and I do think this video talking about the C-bomb and the potential closure of the PlayStation Network and all these various things is a few steps early, right? It's reacting to the closure of the store, not the closure of the network or the authentication, but on the understanding that it will happen at some point. That if you think that that will happen at some point, it's worth noting that the Library of Congress, that this process is contemplating the issue. And that one thing that might be better than a class action or an arbitration or a mediation or what you might go through, through a legal process, is actually going and continuing to advocate for changes here in this list of things that should be allowed, that you could say, instead of all this, that something that has passed its end of life, that if the PlayStation 3 is acknowledged as no longer being supported, which we can assume when the PlayStation Network is taken down from access to that console, that when you face that end of life, piracy is no longer a concern for that piece of hardware, that you're not making a cognizable amount of money through its sales anyway, or else you would have kept the network online. And so now once that happens, once you take down that console level server, then now gamers should be allowed to modify the console software just like the preservationists in order to access the things that they purchased. But it doesn't say that right now. Now, the important part of this entire process is to note, however, that this is something that is ongoing, that is looked at constantly for what should be exempted from this particular rule. And so I think that advocacy on that point is much more likely to bear fruit than going through the legal redress system for a console that would probably be 20 years old at the time with a one-year warranty and a lot of contract language that suggests you can't complain anyway. Doesn't mean that an enterprising class action litigator or attorney doesn't bring it up. Certainly could and certainly could potentially try to squeeze some kind of class action settlement out of Sony in the future. But the most important thing, just like we do in virtual legality here, is to continue to get these messages out, to continue to examine these things, the language in the contracts, how these products actually work, so that more people are better informed about them, make better decisions, and bring that pressure on these entities when it's deserved. As I do think it is here, end of life should be something that is contemplated now that we have consoles that were digital only, or that had the capability of being digital only, reaching that end of life plateau. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this, we're talking about the business and law of video games, music, movies, television, pop culture, and more all the time in this channel. Please consider supporting it at Patreon, Streamlabs, or by buying a shirt or mug down below. If none of those things appeal to you, every single little bit helps. Just subscribe, ring the bell, leave a comment, make Google happy and tell your friends that we're having this conversation. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.